Well, everyone, I want to welcome you to this evening's episode of The Articulate Fly. It's my pleasure to welcome Jason Randall to the show. Welcome, Jason. Hey, thanks. I appreciate being here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, it's great to have you. And before Jason and I start chatting, I just wanted to give a shout out to tonight's sponsor. Tonight, we're sponsored by the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. The event's in its 19th year and is put on by show promoter Bo Beasley. And this year, it'll be held January 12th and 13th. That's the weekend after the Denver show in Doswell, Virginia. And if you go to the events page on our website, thearticulatefly.com, you can get all the details that you need. It should be a great event. I think, Jason, you're going to be there, aren't you? I am. I'm going to be there for the second time, uh, second year in a row, and, and it is just a wonderful event. It's it's one of those events you can bring the family to, or even, you know, maybe you have a spouse that doesn't uh, fly fish. I think it's a great event for that as well. Yeah, no, it'll be a lot of fun. I think I'm going to bring my 10-year-old again, so he's looking forward to it. Um, well, listen, I ask all of my guests when I talk to them what their earliest fishing memory is. You know, like like so many of us, I think uh, my earliest memory is one I spent with my dad. And though um, uh, I spent a lot of time fishing with him, he was a bass fisherman, so I can remember getting up at the crack of dawn and going out and shivering on an aluminum boat, drinking tepid coffee and and eating stale donuts. But probably one of my favorite memories of fishing with my dad, although it's not one of my earliest memories, it happened when I was uh, just recently out of college, was uh, a time that we fished together. He had just bought a cabin in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and uh, bass fishing and, and uh, northern pike fishing was his passion. And uh, my wife Joe was in the front of a uh, of a twelve foot you know V hole boat. My dad was in the back, and I was in the center. And and my wife uh, was catching just one fish after another: rock bass and panfish on on worms and bobbers. And my dad and I were throwing bucktail spinners, MEP spinners, and my wife asked my, my dad, she said, you know, do you ever catch anything uh, on those things? And uh, have you ever caught a fish that really bent the rod? And just probably within a half an hour after that, uh, we'd landed a 25-pound muskie fishing, and she, st- when, she was pretty excited when the fish hit, and it rolled down in the weeds, and then when it jumped out of the water for the first time, she started jumping up and down in the bow of that 12-foot V-hole, which is never a really good idea. Right. And every every time she landed, my dad would kind of pop up in the back. Um, and so it was kind of like a seesaw. As she was cheerleading from the front, my dad was bouncing like a cork in the back. That is one of my favorite memories of fishing, though, uh, from, from an earlier uh, age anyway. Well, that's fantastic. And when did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> I started to play with that around that same time. And I picked up a fly rod, and it was in southern Wisconsin. It was on a private trout stream, and, and I had really very little instruction and no mentorship. And I I became very frustrated with it, and I didn't catch uh, any fish that day. I picked it up a couple of different times uh, over the years as well, and it just, to me, it underscored the value of mentorship and training and instruction. It wasn't really until probably 10 years later, probably we're talking about the the 90s now, somewhere in the mid-90s, 
we were on a vacation with another family and everyone had activities for the day except the other husband and I. The wives were going to do some shopping. The kids were going to do uh, um, some kind of a kid activity. And uh, my my very good friend, Dan, looked at me and said, what do you want to do? He said, we can go fly fishing. And I said, well, I've tried it. And I really um, you know, got kind of frustrated. He said, well, let's get a guide. And so we got a guide, and I can't even remember this guide's name, but what a profound impact he had on me. He took us out uh, at probably around 8 in the morning, and uh, as a bass fisherman, I thought that was too late, um, but he, uh, he said, no, it would be fine. And he spent the first hour teaching, teaching both of us how to cast, how to mend, how to present the fly, and by that time I'm getting itchy because I'm and, and as a bass fisherman. I think we've already blown it, and uh, he said, "Don't relax. There'll be about nine thirty or ten. There'll be a beautiful caddis hatch. Of course, I didn't know what a caddis hatch was at that point, um, but I said, okay. And you know what? It was magical. And because he had spent some time teaching." explaining things, mentoring. He even talked about some of the real uh, biological aspects of our sport. I was in love. From that point on, I was I was uh, over to the dark side. <laughs> what river were you fishing in Colorado? Do you remember? We were fishing the Upper Blue by Keystone. And, um, you know, like I wish I could remember his name because I would certainly, uh, I'd certainly send him a big thank you. Yeah, it's so important, I think, to mentor people in the sport because, you know, it's the, I think everybody that I talk to remembers that special time they spent with someone who took an interest in them getting the same thing out of the sport that they got out of the sport. Absolutely. It's one of those sports where, and I think most of those sports, you really, you can really benefit from from having mentors. And I've been blessed to have some excellent mentors along the way. Early on, uh, I would certainly point to that guide, that unnamed guide who had a profound impact on me as an angler. But uh, some of my earlier mentors were just people that took an interest in me. Uh, George Custon, Darren Sakis, and uh, Bob Nicholson was a, was a retired guide in Michigan. And I could spend half a day on his boat and he would explain things and he would challenge me. He wasn't always an easy mentor, but he would challenge me to be a better angler. And I can remember he got on me early in my career about casting and being able to, to pick a target and cast to a target. And, and I felt really bad because I couldn't. And then I went home that the rest of that summer, and I had so much line whipping around the backyard, I, I, I didn't have to whip weeds for the rest of that season. It's like a, it's like a weed whipper going around the backyard with all the fly line flying. But you know what? I came back the next year as a better angler. And later in my career, I got a chance to have some wonderful mentors take me to the next level. Lefty Cray, uh, I met him many years ago, and he helped me not only as an angler and in the angling world or the business of fly fishing, but just as a person, too. I'm a better person for having known him. And Ed, he and Ed Javorowski helped me become a better caster, and, and uh, those people 
those are the the blessings we're called to share, and I think that's a, a big motivation for me. Uh, that's uh, that's helped me go further uh, because I do want to share the things and the stories and the and the uh, information that they shared with me. Yeah, and, and you know it's so unfortunate that we lost Lefty this year. But what's your favorite memory of spending time with Lefty? Oh my goodness! You know uh, what a wonderful. What a wonderful person. For those people that had never the privilege to meet him, any kind and wonderful thing that you may have heard about him is an understatement. He was all that and more. But I think probably my favorite story uh, occurred when he was a young man and he was just out of uh, out of the service. He got back. He fought as a combat uh, World War II veteran. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He came back and was reassigned to Fort Detrick for the few remaining months that he had before he was discharged. And he was uh, he was assigned to a of all things to a biological weapons lab, and uh, he contracted anthrax there. And um, the, the three enlisted people that were assigned to clean out the vats between every batch of anthrax, uh, they all caught anthrax, and three of uh, two of the three died. Obviously, Lefty was the one who survived, but he was in the hospital for a long time. And uh, the um, the army uh, then harvested his antibodies, so they had a, a, a perfect weapon and a perfect kind of an antidote for it as well. And so, in a dubious honor, they named that after Lefty. They called it uh, BVK One, <laughs> which stood for Bernard Victor Cray. And so they named the and that's all over the internet. It's well documented, true story. Um, but then. Um, he was looking for a job, and he went to his mentor, again, underscoring the value of those mentors in our in our lives. But that was Joe Brooks, then the editor of Outdoor Life. And, and Joe helped him get his first job as an outdoor columnist. And he was one of the early earliest uh, outdoor syndicated outdoor columnists uh, in, in the newspaper world. And they sent him down to... Uh, to, uh, to cover a fishing tournament in, in uh, Havana, Cuba. And there he met and fished with uh, Fidel Castro, and he fished with uh, Ernest Hemingway. And I remember a story one time that, uh, that he shared with me of that uh, Hemingway experience. And he was a, a brand-new writer, and he fished, uh, spent a day, with Hemingway and uh, the the first mate Santiago, who of course uh, Hemingway immortalized as the old man in the sea uh, as the protagonist in that book, but he asked Herming Ernest Hemingway what uh, what type of advice uh, he might share with then a, a novice writer Lefty Cray. Lefty asked him for some writing tips from Ernest Hemingway of all of all people, and Ernest said, "You know what? Good writing cannot be edited." Because if you add anything to it or or take anything away from it, it's just not as good. And and that's some profound wisdom from from a literary literary giant. And you know, Lefty shared that story with so many of us, and it is one of my favorites. Wow, that's interesting. That's one I'd never heard before. That's really uh, that's really pretty neat that he got to spend time with Ernest Hemingway. Absolutely. Uh, so I know your day job, you're a veterinarian, and I know that you're certified in fish health and medicine. And I was just kind of curious if that kind of grew out of your fishing interest or if it was the other way around? 
Actually, uh, it really it really dovetails dovetails very closely with that. I I uh, became a veterinarian in 1983, a long time ago, and uh, as an outdoor advocate and and uh, passionate outdoorsman, uh, as I drew closer to fly fishing, I was intrigued with the uh, the scientific aspect of our sport. And at that point, there wasn't a lot out there beyond simple entomology, and and that had been fairly well documented, but there wasn't much information from the actual biology of trout and stream ecology and some of those aspects of the scientific nature of our sport. And that's what really drew me to become, I went back to become certified in fish health and medicine at the University of Wisconsin. Then many, many years after graduation, and which would have qualified me to work in the fisheries industry. But as I as I uh, got closer and closer uh, to the fisheries industry, I realized that wasn't my true passion. Uh, I just wanted to understand more about trout, understand more about river ecology and, and how that could apply then to fly fishing. But it really did. It one fed the other and it gave, uh, it gave me a lot of information that I was excited to share with the angling world. And so was that sort of the jumping off place for you to, to become an outdoor writer? Yeah, it really was. With a scientific background, I, I thought it was important to, to share that information. Some of the information that that I brought uh, to the fly fishing world had been available in the in the world of, of science for many many years. The first book, Moving Water, really uh, shared information that had been published probably in the in the early 80s or mid 80s in some of the scientific journals and things and uh it was exciting um and i think it really helped me uh develop my first article that i wrote which was probably 8 or 9 years ago now in american angler that that really looked at the structure of current and and since then it's probably been 30 articles since uh that i've written for american angler and uh, again many of them have had that kind of scientific flavor to them and sort of about the movement from magazine articles to writing books. I mean, that seems like a pretty big step. It is, but I, I think it's very, very similar. Uh, I think that the books have a, a longer shelf life, perhaps, and I think it's just perhaps they have a little bit longer lasting value. But I think one book led to another, and you just kind of get wrapped up in the passion of it. And, and you see yourself develop, too, and I was blessed to have so many great mentors in the publishing industry. Uh, I, my early uh, magazine enter, uh, mentors were the editor at American Angler, Steve Walburn, who was replaced uh, by Ben Romans, and then the book editor, Jay Nichols. They really helped me develop and grow as a writer and helped help me find my voice and my style. And I'll never forget the first book uh, that I worked with with Jay, um, I was so excited. It was moving water. It was really a study of, of uh, the structure of current and how it affects fly fishing, especially nymph fishing when we have to cross through faster layers of current uh, to, to keep our flies in the strike zone, which is the slowest moving uh, water near the bottom, which is where the trout are and which is where the food is. But I can remember I was so excited that um, I, I think I submitted 90,000 words for this first book. <laughs> And uh, Jay, the editor, uh, he he chopped out thirty thousand words. <laughs> he said, <laughs> "He said now make these other sixty thousand words better." 
And he he uh, he he gave me the adjective for my writing style. He said he said you have circumlocution. Okay, I had to go look that up, and I knew it wasn't a compliment when he said it. But it is the literary equivalent of beating around the bush. So, uh, you know, I came back at the rewrite, and I had I had a much better book because of uh, because of his influence, because of uh, of circumlocution. <laughs> so, so it's interesting too, because I know you put out four books, what in about five years, six years, which is yeah, and I mean they're they're not short, and they're incredibly thorough. Um, how were you able to juggle, you know, you still want to fish, you have a family, you have a career. I mean, there must have been phenomenal discipline to write and and ship books at that kind of a pace. It it was a pretty, pretty fast pace. There's no doubt about it. Four, four books in that, that short of a period is, is, uh, is really a, a pretty fast clip. Plus, I was writing in every issue at that point on several magazines and, and it was, uh, it was intense. But you just get the, the passion, uh, just catches you and you get snowballed and caught up in it. And I, the more I, uh, information that I, I shared, um, the more I, I wanted to share. And, and the third book, which which was uh, on the trout uh, themselves. Uh, the trout sense really studies their their sensory sense of vision and, and hearing and smelling, and and that book really forced me to to uh, a tremendous amount of research. I learned more in writing that book, I think, um, than I ever anticipated. I, I really had to dig out a lot of that information, but it, in the process, I I I, I became acquaintanceships uh, with uh, many of the leading biological researchers in the field of, of trout biology. I, I talked to uh, people that, that uh, were very, very uh, much at the forefront of, of like trout vision and the, the relationship of ultraviolet light and in freshwater fishes and as it compared to the marine water fishes. And the more you learn, the more it takes you um, on its journey. And, and uh, the end of that book, I think at the end of the book, we ended up with 21 pages of bibliography, different sources and, and uh, references that, that uh, had gone into the compilation of that book. It was an intense undertaking. And but it, it was one of those ones where I really grew and I learned a ton that I was so excited to, to put into the pages of that book. And, and so, do you like to write like at a set time every day, or do you like to wall off a large period of time to write kind of in spurts? I'm always I find the creative process really fascinating. Absolutely, and, it, I, and that was a, a, a great way of looking at it. It's a great creative outlet, and, and it really, it's like an artist who paints. You know, I can see how they become obsessed with it, and, and I think that's what captured me as well. But I'm a very early riser, and so I'm usually up by 4.30 in the morning, and to me, uh, a couple of cups of coffee and, and the quiet of that period of the day, it was very conducive to writing, and so I would write from four o'clock every morning till about seven. And then I would spend the evenings doing the research and, and uh, getting everything pulled together. And then it just, it, it just kind of uh, takes over, I think. 
No, I, I'm sort of finding that with this podcast and the website that I'm running, it does sort of yeah. Take you've over. got a big project now. This is exciting. I'm I'm excited for you. This is really a great way of sharing information as well, and I think it really reaches a whole different angling audience. Yeah, I hope so. It's been on my to do list for a long time, and I've kind of rejiggered some things in my life to um, to be able to do it. And uh, I'm I'm super excited that you you're here with me tonight, and I appreciate it so much. Um, and I know your last book, Nymph Masters, which I thought was really great, and I bought it. I think I had you sign it for me last year at uh, Bo's yep, show. Yeah, thank you. Um, Remember that. Yeah, talk about how autobiographical that book is uh, from your that, your growth. It is. It is very much so. It. Uh, I think if you look at the th- first three books as kind of the foundation. Nymph Masters is a superstructure upon which all that is built. And by that time, I had uh, really broadened my depth of knowledge and my experience as an angler. But I'd also, uh, in in being involved in the fly fishing uh, industry, uh, I had just become friends with so many wonderful anglers. And I thought, what better way of, of presenting a topic than to have corroboration with some of the best names in, in nymphing uh, or, or just in angling in general. But, you know, people like Joe Humphreys and Lefty Cray and Ed Jaborowski, some, some of my mentors, to be able to share their ideas with people like George Daniel and Gary Borger and Landon Mayer and Ed Engel, people that I love to fish with, uh, Tom Baltz and, and uh, Chad Johnson and Ben Ferimsky. These are all wonderful anglers, and it just it was just, I, I think, uh, a privilege to the, the the research on that was awesome because I, I hung out with uh, friends and we fished all the time. And but I was able to learn how each of them, I think, had solved the problems in nymph fishing. The the main problems are is getting your flies down to where the trout are, rather than having your flies get trapped in mid current, uh, where the 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 mid levels are where the the fastest flow of water is. But those trout and the food and our flies all need to be at the bottom. But it was amazing to me how many of these these talented anglers had solved those problems in different ways, whether it was the way that they cast and deliver the flies. Presentation is huge. Uh, presentation, I think, is, is probably the biggest uh, and sometimes most overlooked aspect in nymph fishing because you're going to catch more flies with uh, maybe not the absolutely correctly choice to fly, but presented extremely well. You'll catch more flies literally with the wrong fly that's presented well. You're going to catch more fish with the wrong fly in the right presentation than you will with the wrong presentation of the right fly. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm always trying to simplify things and particularly for new anglers. And I think that's a real blessing if people will embrace it to not, you know, you know, you, everyone says in so many instances that, you know, flies are there to basically be sold to fly fishermen, not necessarily to catch fish, but to get really good uh, at your presentation. And you can really skinny down your fly box. That's true. That's true. And it's amazing how many of those uh, really top anglers maybe have less than a dozen flies, uh, but they really focus on presenting those flies effectively in such a way that trout will, will take them. And so many times we come across feeding trout, especially when there is no specific hatch going on, trout are feeding uh, less discriminately and more opportunistically. They're feeding up from a variety of food sources, like being at the buffet. You, know, you might have a little of this, a little of that, one of these, you know, 
And so I think um, the fly choice is, is something sometimes we we uh, obsess over, um, and it, it is important. I mean, I, I do try to put some a lot of attention on on choosing the right fly. But if we can choose uh, a, a decent fly and present it well, I think we've really enhanced our chances to catch fish. Yeah, it's interesting. What do you think? And it's kind of funny because I've I've interviewed several people that are very active in tight line nymphing or competitive fishing and. Um, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions people have about tight line nymphing? I think it's just how effective it truly is. Uh, under the right circumstances, it's not the the uh, nymphing answer for every circumstance because there's still opportunities where you're going to want to use a, a suspension device or a floating indicator. You know, certainly when you can't get close enough to your target to use a tight line approach, or maybe there's a current uh, seam or thread that you need to, to drift through that you just can't reach otherwise, or from a drift boat, uh, I think still those uh, those floating suspension style indicators are the best. But under the right circumstances, um, I think tight line nymphing oftentimes outperforms these other methods uh, because of the the it reaches those two goals of, of nymph fishing, which is really improving your strike detection by having a more linear connection to the flies, but also keeping your flies in the strike zone, which is the bottom 20% of the water column. And I think that and a lot of times we're calling these techniques more and more either tight line techniques or contact techniques because they, they do emphasize two points of contact, staying in contact with those flies your fly staying in contact with the, the strike zone, but you can you can actually achieve that uh, under the right circumstances with uh, with a strike indicator as well. Uh, but it it forces you to make some adjustments. Uh, and when I did the research for the book, fishing with people like Ed Engel and Gary Borger, those those are guys that really probably get the most out of a floating uh, indicator of anybody I've, I've fished with. But they really do try to reach those two goals of contact, those two points of contact, contact with the flies and contact of the flies with the bottom. And Gary oftentimes does it with a little more weight. Um, Ed Engel does it with, uh, you know, uh, again, balancing his rig so that you don't have too large of a suspension device uh, relative to the, the, the size of, or weight of your presentation. And uh, one of the funny things that Joe Humphrey shared with me when I fished with him he said the difference between a good nymph angler and a great nymph angler is two split shot. Getting your flies down to where the trout are. Yeah. And I think contact nymphing, the tight line nymphing techniques, really do that most effectively, uh, but not exclusively. Again, I think you can balance the rig either with a little more weight or a smaller strike indicator. I think we over-suspend those things, but you can you can get that with uh, with a uh, suspension or flotation device too. You just have to. I think you have to work a little bit. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and you know, it's it can be a little bit intimidating. Um, so you know, if you were just an average angler who was interested in tight line nymphing, and you you know you start to look at it, and it's like, gosh, I got to get new flies, I got to buy all different kinds of tippet, got a bit tippet rings. What would be kind of the simplest way to try tight line nymphing to get that positive reinforcement of the experience to kind of give you the fuel to to dig into it a little bit deeper? 
Well, I think I think with anything that we're going to learn or uh, to try to develop, there's going to be a bit of a learning curve, and I think you have to be patient with it. Uh, you didn't pick up the fly rod the first time and catch 60 fish. Um, and I think you can work towards that goal. But I think keeping it simple um, is is probably one of the best ways of, of doing. I don't think you if you dive into uh, a lot of the, the real um, – technical aspects of tight line nymphing, you can get kind of lost. But I think a simple leader right now, I'm, I'm advocating a, uh, a very simple leader system for especially for people that are new to the tight line nymphing that just starts with the scientific Amer- American, uh, 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 scientific angler, I'm sorry, um, 15-foot uh, Audex leader uh, and just tying a little bit of high-visibility monofilament onto that and then terminal tippet and, and tackle. And that, I think, is a simple way of addressing the leader needs for that. But um, I think also uh, just maybe uh, going, taking a class. A lot of the, the angling clubs have uh, speakers come in that do classes. I know um, I do a lot of streamside classes and, and club uh, presentations and classes. A, a lot of people do. George Daniel does. Devin Olson does. People that are are, are well versed in, in tight line nymphing. Um, but I think getting mentorship, again, just like any other aspect of our sport, getting education, uh, quality education is key. Uh, but I think if you can start with that basis, uh, that builds a very good foundation for the basic skill set. And I think then once you get out uh, – uh, and and uh, keep practicing on the river, and especially as you catch more fish and, and you learn uh, what works in your hand, I think um, that experience value is a, is a real attribute as well. But also there's a lot of great uh, books out there. Um, George just brought out another book too um, that's kind of dynamic, dynamic nymphing too. Um, Nymph Master is the book that we brought out uh, last year, a, a great resource. Um, and I think, again, fishing with some, some uh, guides, experienced guides that are able to teach that, going to shows, taking classes, I think that's a wise investment. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, of uh, classes at the, the larger fly fishing shows. And I think if you, if you invest that uh, time and effort into that, I think it pays dividends. Yeah, and I would I would have a hunch that you're probably are teaching one of those classes or giving a seminar on that in Virginia and probably in Texas. Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I'll be teaching uh, both of those things uh, at uh, both of the Virginia and Texas shows, and they're they're very well attended. And I think after something like that, after that kind of an educational experience, it's a small investment in time and energy that you can go out. Um, and, and I get emails from people all the time that have, have just done one of those two hour classes and, you know, then they build on that. Yeah. And are, are you going to be doing similar classes and speaking engagements at the, uh, at the fly fishing shows with the Fremskis as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll be in Denver this year. I'll be in uh, Edison uh, in the in the greater metro New York area. And I'll be in Atlanta. I'll be at Pleasanton in, in California. And uh, I usually do probably all but one or two of uh, Ben Frimsky's shows. And those are just like those shows. Those are full of energy. Um, a lot of educational opportunity. If, if people uh, could take the, the time and effort to get to a show, if it's close enough to them and, and it's feasible, the amount of, of information that is shared by, by some of the leading people in our sport is absolutely phenomenal. And I think that it's, it's certainly uh, it's well worth the effort. 
Yeah. I'm always amazed. I always tell people, I think fly fishermen are some of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. Um, I think outdoorsmen are in general, but fly fishermen in particular seem to be very, very uh, giving of their knowledge. I agree with you. And I, I, I grew up, like I said, with my dad, I grew up as a bass fisherman and I was, uh, for several years, I was a tournament bass fisherman. And, uh, you talk about jealously guarding secrets. Uh, if you were, uh, pre-fishing for a tournament or even just going out to fish and you noticed another boat where some, some fishermen were just catching a lot of fish and you kind of eased over there and said, Hey, you guys are killing it. What are you doing? they they would kind of hide it and say, oh, I don't know, we're just, <laughs> just fishing, you know, crankbaits, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but if you went up to another angle, and I've done this many times, and, and you got somebody there that's really, really catching fish, and you go up and ask that angler, what are you doing? You are really fishing well. That, that person is usually going to take the time to, and explain. And I've had people even hand me flies and say, you know what, here, why don't you throw this fly over there and try it? And I, I've never met more generous uh, people than I have in the angling world. They're just passionate about what they do, but passionate and happy and eager to share that knowledge. Yeah, it's good for your fishing karma, too, to help other people out. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So we, we talked about the beginners and kind of taking the first steps and, you know, there are plenty of shows, so there's really not a lot of excuse to try to get out there and make one of those. But if you're more experienced, what do you see more experienced nymph anglers doing consistently that hurts their ability to be a more effective nymph angler? That hurts their ability? Yeah, that I they need to work on. You know, like if you, if you said, I saw 10 people, I bet you eight out of 10 of those people are going to do X. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think a lot of times we end up repeating what doesn't work. Um, you know, the definition of insanity by Albert Einstein was uh, doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. And I think, um, again, I'm, I'm blessed with, with having uh, worked with so many great uh, nymph anglers and anglers in general and, and be, uh, being able to benefit from their wisdom. But um, you know, if, if you are, are, are fishing and doing tight line and you're not catching fish, that's the first tip off that you're doing something wrong. And, uh, yeah, I think again, um, focusing on presentation and, and, um, um, yeah, I think just, you know, working on getting your flies to the strike zone, staying in touch with those flies during the drift getting at a good drift. I, uh, and I'm always learning. I think, I think continuing to, to, to commit yourself to growing and learning as an angler. I, I got a fish with, uh, Vladi Tribunia, uh, a couple of years ago in, uh, in uh, Poland. And he's obviously the, the grandfather of Polish nymph and kind of introduced the whole thing, uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And, um, just seeing the different nuances of what he's doing with presentation. They're using a lot of jigs. And, of course, the Pertagon jigs are huge now in, in nymphing, in the nymphing world. And Pertagon means, uh, in Spanish, it means pellet, which helps improve the sink rate of those flies, getting them to the strike zone, uh, and then keeping them uh, in the strike zone during the drift. But those the, the jig 
version of that actually kind of floats upside down with the hook point up. And he was kind of doing a slight jigging presentation through the drift and and uh, catching more fish. And I, you know, and, and I noticed what he was doing and, um, you know, just talked to him about how to make that a more natural presentation. It's not merely enough for our flies to be down there in front of trout, but trying to give it that lifelike effect is huge. And, and, um, I saw one time he was, we were fishing together and, and we swapped stories and we swapped flies. It was delightful. We did it over, uh, a cup of uh, espresso. I think he was drinking tea, though. And uh, we opened up our fly boxes and shared our flies and things like that. And had a delightful time. Then spent um, a lot of time on the river. One time he hook set, um, and I said, "You know, Vladi, I didn't see that strike. I didn't even know." I, I said, "What did you see that I didn't see?" And he he, he, he turned around and he said, "Nothing." I said, I struck there because that's where the fish should have been. <laughs> and so those little things, you know, something as simple as a, a blind hook set, because that's where the trout should have been. If he'd have been there, uh, you know, he would have caught him. And, and just subtle things like that. But changes in presentation, I think the best anglers, back to that question, what, what do we see that might be hurting uh, our development as anglers, I think is not being open to change and not being open to that personal growth and development that'll take you to the next level. Just doing the same thing over and over every time you go to the river because it worked a little bit. Well, maybe uh, a new methodology or a new variation might work a little bit better. And I think that's what we have to be open to. And I, and that's one of the common, uh, uh, I think, characteristics of some of these top anglers is, man, they're excited about this stuff. They're passionate about it. They're like, what are you doing that I'm not doing? I, oh, that's cool. I want to try that. You know, they're very receptive to those, uh, the, to any new idea. Yeah, it's interesting. I know I really struggle with that kind of remembering that every day is different and every day is new and sort of as a fisherman trying to kind of go through a progression uh, when I'm on the water. So I, you know, that really, you know, resonates with me because it's something I try really hard to remember to do. And I always just get excited because I don't get to fish as much as I like to, um, and just get out on the water. And sometimes it doesn't work out as well as I would hope. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I know you're also um, a member of the TFO advisory staff. And I know about a year ago, you worked with them to put out, um, the drift rod. And I, I was kind of curious to hear about that development process and what it was like and how long it took and, um, and kind of, cause I don't think people, you know, we sort of understand how rods are made, but I don't know that we really understand very well the kind of the development and design process. Well, yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> I learned a lot in that process too. And that came about by uh, a cup of coffee uh, between uh, Lefty Cray and Ed Javorowski and Rick Pope, Rick Pope, the president of DFO at that time, and I. We just had a cup of coffee together and, and you know, I, I said, I just, there isn't a, a good uh, family of nymphing rods in the TFO lineup of rods. And uh, we talked about the, the, the importance of that and, and changes and trends in our sport and, and the need, I think, to, to really uh, focus on that. And, and Rick Pope uh, is just a 
he's just a very wonderful influence in our sport and, and enough uh, can't be said about his impact on it. And he's very open and eager uh, for these types of ideas. And he says, well, we kind of have this this uh, vision uh, and, and uh, you know, this, this prototype at this stage that was going to be developed into a nymphing rod. And he literally handed me the the convertible rod uh, concept and prototype for the drift rod. It was a, a rod that was to start at a nine-foot uh, four-piece rod in a three-weight um, uh, size, and they could be uh, uh, configured then literally to be either nine-foot, ten-foot, eleven-foot, or twelve-foot. And um, they thought that appealing to the angler who really only wanted to carry one rod to the river, uh, but maybe like the backpack or horseback ride or, or wander the river uh, and, and maybe would want to, to be able to, to fish in different styles and circumstances, that versatile rod would be the answer to that angler's needs. And so my idea originally, I think, was to make a, a, a pure dedicated nymphing rod, but um, um the way it developed, I fell in love with this idea of a versatile rod. And at 10 foot, at the configured length of 10 foot, um, that drift rod is a very good nymphing rod. At 9 feet, it's a very good dry fly rod. At, at, at 10 feet, uh, uh, the nymphing, it's just, it's just got the right balance and the feel for it. If you need a longer rod to reach out across the current seam or to, re- get it to extend that drift a little bit or to reach a little further, an 11-foot nymphing rod will work. Um, it's a little tip-heavy at that point. As a nymphing rod, it it's, would be a very limited use for me. But if I switch it to a 12-foot, it becomes a beautiful micro-spay, um, you know, kind of a small streamer uh, rod for trout. So it really kind of is a four-in-one rod series, um, and it really fills a need, I think, in uh, in the uh, availability of rods that that really um, don't. Uh, there's been a couple of other versatile rods that have been introduced in the market, but they really lack the true versatility that the drift rod has. The drift rod has a special stripping guide that you can um, kind of. Uh, uh, weave in and out as you need to as you introduce uh, different segments to change in length. Uh, you introduce those right in front of the handle segment. And then it's got an easy um, access stripping rod that you can put the line back through the guides without restringing the whole rod. Um, so you can change lengths um, in moments on this on the uh, on the stream without having to pull all the line down through the rest of the rod and restringing it. So the, it is truly a versatile rod that that really satisfies that need. But um, that rod has has received a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, success and and a lot of accolades because of its its true versatility. Now we're coming back though, and we're going to introduce that. Uh, ten, we're going to bring out a whole new family of rods, the stealth rods from TFO, and those are going to be fixed-length dedicated nymphing rods, single-purpose rods, um, to satisfy that need in the market. So kind of two different uh, uh, two different concepts in that and in, in those two different rod families. And when do you expect to be finished developing the stealth rod? 
Well, the stealth rod is at about its third um, stage of, of prototype right now, and we've had some awesome people contributing um, to the design. Um, the design process is itself very interesting uh, because we kind of set the parameters uh, for the, the our, our field team, the people that are, are, are setting kind of the specs on that rod. We kind of give those uh, those parameters to the engineers, and we've, we're blessed with TFO to have one of the greatest uh, rod engineers, I think, in the business, uh, BJM. And um, he can just kind of intuitively um, take those conceptual ideas and parameters and, and bring it out pretty close to a final product. And I think we're on our third stage uh, of developing that rod now. And it's really close. I think it's going to be um, out probably in the next uh, three or four months, uh, probably um, in time for most of the show season. And uh, it's going to be, it is everything that, that I could envision in having in a, in a dedicated nymphing rod. It is light as a thought. It casts like a dream. It's got uh, very crisp action, uh, which you need uh, to deliver very, uh, you're not casting a lot of line oftentimes with a nymphing presentation, especially in tight line. So you don't have the benefit of a weight forward line to load that rod. So the rod has really got to be very easy to load. And uh, the delivery of that cast, you can't have a lot of uh, recoil or memory. It can't bounce a lot because that's going to, uh, really degrade your cast and, and, uh, and ha- really handicap your presentation. So a lot of different features, and I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about uh, you know rod action and recovery and terms like that. My vocabulary is a lot different, I think, through the process. But it's easier the second time around. We're having a lot of fun. This thing is just delightful. That's fantastic. And, you know, I always ask my guests too about any recent fishing trips that uh, you want to share with us because, you know, we do all this other stuff and you m- want to make sure you don't get away from why we got into the sport in the first place, which was to actually go fishing. Yeah. And sometimes you kind of do lose track of that, you know, but, um, we were, uh, we got a chance to have our whole family together, both my wife, Joe and I, and, uh, both kids and their husbands or wives. And, uh, even my nephew and best friend went up and we spent a week in, uh, on the Alagnac river in Alaska and to be able to, to pursue your outdoor passions is, is tremendous, but be able to share those outdoor passions with those you love the most is, is remarkable. And it's, it's really a gift. And we were able to, to go up and, and fish with a, a very long time uh, friend and guide. Um, Jamie Klaus is one of the main guides up there at the lodge. And we spent a week up with him who, you know, very well over many, many years of fishing together. And it was, it's, it's that guy, the weather was, rotten <laughs> it rained the whole most every uh at least part of uh, of every day but the fishing made up for it we were there for the sockeye run and, and to watch oh my son-in-law's really his very first big fishing trip they've been uh, he's been married to my daughter for a couple of years now but to really see him come alive as an angler, uh, spending that time up there. The first few casts were very tentative, and, and by the end of the trip, man, he was great and just loving it. And uh, same thing with uh, with my uh, daughter-in-law. And just to watch them play, 
you know, 10 pound sockeyes or chum salmon. And, and, uh, it was, it was marvelous. We caught a few Kings, um, but we came together every night and, and, uh, you know, had dinner together and played cribbage and, and, uh, you know, had a couple of, uh, cold beers or, or, uh, scotch, something like that in the evening. And, and, uh, it is, it is a memory of a lifetime. Yeah, no, I enjoy fishing with my boys too. It's just a lot of fun. And uh, how old are your sons? So my oldest is sixteen, and my youngest is ten. Oh, that's wonderful. They're they're probably at an age where it's just delightful. Yeah, it's fun. And um, you know, my sixteen year old is very very focused when he goes, and my ten year old is more like a ten year old. I think you met him last year uh, at, yeah. at Bow Show, and he'll be I, back. I, I remember him. He is he is a very very uh, enthusiastic young man. Yeah, he is, and you know he's got his TFO visor, so he's he's excited. I remember he, that. Yeah, he's, he was kind of adopted by the TFO folks. I yeah, think. so he um, he's looking forward, and he'll be with me with me next year with this coming year. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, but you know the time that you spend at that age with your children in the outdoor sports, uh, you know, uh, angling or whatever it might be, that's an investment. Because that's when they really want to spend time and learn from you. And then the time that they spend um, at my point in life where my kids are all grown up, that is the dividend. That's the uh, return on that investment. Because now, because we did spend that time, they do have an appreciation of an out, uh, the outdoors and a love for those things. They want to spend time with me, and you don't get one without the other. Yeah, no, it's it's been a lot of fun, and it's it's actually really as I kind of look back, I fished as a kid, but I guess probably you know right before my oldest son was born, was sitting there. First of all, I was working too hard, um, and uh, I needed to fix that, so I started buying shotguns and fly rods. Um, but but uh, that's a disease. <laughs> it is it is a disease. Um, but then I also to your point, I was like, you know, I I want to you know something I enjoyed as a kid. I want to share it with my kids, but also to be able to compete with video games and why soccer. Uh, oh yeah. And there's nothing wrong with video games. I love those too. But you know, um, I, I wanted to have something to do with them. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, and I know you're, you're working on a new rod for, for TFO. Have you got any book projects in the pipeline or are you kind of taking a little bit of a breather? Yeah, I'm on a timeout. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of a, a self-imposed timeout and, and, uh, maybe, maybe some of that comes from my wife as well. But, um, you know, I, I'm taking a, a break. Um, I have, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of not looked for a new commitment right now, either in the magazine field. Uh, I've, I've uh, been on kind of a sabbatical from my magazine articles. And then also as far as book uh, projects go as well, because they they really do take so much um so much time and focus and energy and you know i'm very you know very blessed to have my wife as a angler and she's also a phenomenal photographer and she put out all of the most of the photos i will say all of them because some of them were um uh, others but uh the the cover shot and and i think almost 200 photos in the most recent book nymph masters um are hers and uh it was it, it's kind of a group effort um and so i think I, this year i haven't had um those big projects other than developing the new stealth rod for tfo and it's been it's just been fun um and i some of my very good angling friends have had huge 
book projects, George Daniel and Landon Mayer and Ed Engel have all been under deadline and under the gun. And you know, some of the trips that we've planned together to go and fish, um, you know, it was out in Colorado fishing and I, it just, you know, seeing them, you know, under those deadlines and, and facing, um, the, those types of commitments and, they're, they say, well, I can, I can only fish this day and then I've got to do this. And, and I think a lot of times, uh, oftentimes we don't appreciate how much time goes into that, how much investment, um, from those, uh, the, the authors goes into those books. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm probably going to have another one. Um, yeah, I'm probably going to, going to suggest an idea to Jay Nicholas Dackpole, um, in the future. But, um, I think it might be another year off. So I'll get to fish some, and I'm sure you're getting primed for the show season. And so we know you're going to be at Bo Beasley shows and at the Fremsky shows. Where else can people find you um, this uh, this winter and during the show season? I'll probably do – I do a lot of local clubs. Uh, I do a lot in the Midwest, but I'll – if they've got a one-day event or something like that, I do a lot of. I try to support our our, our sport in in every way I can, and I do I, I do love that interaction. I love to share the information. I love to be able to present some of these concepts and ideas. And so I do a lot of, of smaller events and and uh, and clubs as well. I do TU chapters, and and if I'm in the area and and I'm. Um, going to be there already i'll try to if there's an opportunity like that i'll try to to be able to support that for those clubs because i'm a i'm a life member of tu as well and and uh, i think that's the work that is done uh, on a local chapter level and, and local angling clubs is huge in our sport i think there's I, there's so much so many benefits um you know uh, uh, large scale and just you know in camaraderie and friendships on a smaller uh, scale basis but i usually do probably uh around oh 20 to 25 appearances uh, a year um most of those are at larger uh, national shows and and things but um uh, that people can find me on my website as well uh and, and it usually keeps track of me and if i can if there's a club or a show and, and someone asks me to do it i try to i try to make that work for them so uh and what's your what's your website uh, the website is uh, is just www.jrflyfishing.com, and it's it's got my contact information in there. It's got a, a, a an email address there, and and I do welcome uh, questions and and discussions. And and uh, if uh, anybody needs to reach me, they can certainly uh, reach me through that as well, and or through social media. I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Facebook, and and all those things. And I love to see fish pictures. And I, one of the things I love to see is, is people that I've, I've worked with or had discussions or, or taught before and, and seeing fish pictures from them and, and those types of things. And, and, uh, I love, I just love seeing other people enjoy our sport so much. That's fantastic. Well, I, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this evening, Jason. I've had a lot of fun. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I really appreciate uh, getting to know you and, and seeing a little bit of your family and sharing your passion as well. And I, I thank you for what you're doing in our sport and, and uh, 
the opportunity to share this information, I think, is uh, is uh, so beneficial. And, and thanks, uh, thanks to you for doing that. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jason. And folks, um, our next episode will be out on December 7th, and that will be with another Midwesterner, Matt Sapinski. Um, thank you all for listening tonight. And I would re- love it if you'd leave me a review in iTunes. And you can find this podcast pretty much everywhere that you can find a podcast on the Internet. And if you don't want to have to worry about checking a podcatcher, if you go to our website and subscribe to our newsletter every Saturday, you'll get an email with all of our podcast episodes and all of our new blog posts. Thanks, everyone. Tight lines of good night. Good night, Jason. Good night. Thank you so much.